and this process I was, I've just been describing to you is really my version of how does one write more than one knows? You chase the language, you trust the language to lead you into a, a, a degree of discovery about what it is you're saying as you're saying it. And lo and behold, you're saying what you didn't know to say. Hello, and welcome to The Image Podcast. I'm Sophia Ross. Like some of you, my first encounter with Scott Cairns' poetry was in a college classroom. A student in my 300-level poetry class had chosen Scott as the focus for her term project, and I awoke from the monotony of other end-of-semester presentations to hear her read his work aloud. Since then, I've been a fan, and I was excited to meet him a few weeks ago at a reunion for SPU MFA alumni. He was our host as the new director of the program, and welcomed my colleague and I with a fridge full of turkey, cupboards spilling with wine, and the screening of a Russian film about Orthodox monks. I hope you enjoy this conversation between him and our own Gregory Wolf as they discuss language, meeting making, and of course, faith. All right, Scott Cairns. Welcome to the Image Podcast. Greg Wolf, thanks very much. It's great to be back with you. Yes, and here we are in beautiful Bellingham Bay. Aren't we though? At a little poetry festival at the Episcopal Church, St. Paul's, organized by none other than our best beloved Lucy Shaw. Yes, yes. And uh, Jeannie Murray Walker is with us mm -hmm. here, and just good to, to gather for such a purpose. Yes, and you know, Gregory Wolf held forth last evening. Ah, and well. That, that was scintillating, I gotta say. You know, the old blah, blah, blah. But I'm, I'm, uh, it's good to, to see you. I know you're spending this year back in Missouri. I am, yeah. Um, finishing up your, your time there with the university. Yep. Um, by, yeah, two more semesters, this semester and next semester, and then I'll be in the Northwest for good. But you've already taken over the Seattle Pacific University MFA program. Yeah. Which, How, yeah, which you, which you know a little bit about. I know a little bit about, and which I... Gregory was the founding director and, and the impetus for its existence, so... Well, I think there were multiple impetus. Impetim. <laughs> <laughs> but I was glad to be you know, the efficient cause for its creation. How's the program going? It's going well. We, uh, we have uh, a good crew coming in. We have a few spots yet for our, Whid our Whidbey Spring residency, but uh, good, good applications and strong people coming in. And the people who were there are already very strong and, and thriving. So we have just probably the most compatible cohort of of any program I've ever had anything to do with. It's a real delight to be with people who care about each other as well about each, as caring about each other's writing and writing development. So it, it's unique, I think, amongst uh, writing programs. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, people are supportive in, in, uh, in very serious, personal ways that really take the edge off what is obviously a very demanding, rigorous program. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, how, how did it get so rigorous and demanding? <laughs> well, someone was obviously uh, draconian in their in their requirements and demands, but uh, 
we're a dozen years into this project, Amazing. and yeah. you know, it's great to see alumni publishing and getting teaching and jobs. And they are, yeah, they are. They're doing really well. And I've, I've noticed that the current cohort is actually doing some periodical publishing, even in, you know, even in the saddle, as they're, as they're developing their work, they're, they're sending out f the finished pieces and yeah. finding homes for them. Well, and I think we should let our listeners know that either of us would always be happy to field your questions or calls mm -hmm. about the program. I mean, Scott's the boss right now, but I, I know a thing or two, so don't hesitate to get in Actually, touch. Actually, Greg is the uh, still reigning authority, <laughs> uh, I believe, on, on details, but, uh, but I'm, I'm playing catch up. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's a wonderful program, and for those of you who really want to take your writing to the next level and, and begin to work in the kind of disciplined way that you feel in your heart is, is the way for you to go. We hope you'll, you'll check out the Seattle Pacific University MFA program. So Scott, what are you working on now? Well, let's see, I got a book in progress called Anaphora, and it'll be out with Paraclete, allegedly, in, in the fall of 2018. My deadline is, has graciously been extended to April of, of this, of 2018, and then uh, it'll be out Probably September, October, something like that. Yeah, that's beautiful. So the, this word, anaphora, sounds suspiciously Greek to me. Yes, well, it you is. You seem to like Greek a lot. Well, I spend a lot of time poring over Greek texts and then trying to make, you know, what sort of hobbled translations I can make of them. I've learned to look for people like Evagrios, whose Greek is simple and clean, and to avoid people like Gregory Palamas, whose Greek is mind-numbingly complicated. <laughs> but, uh, but fortunately, there are other translators who have worked on uh, Gregory Palamas, so, uh, so I have access to that. But, but I, yeah, I, I do spend some time poring over Greek texts in translation as well as simpler Greek texts from the patristic period. Now, for you, I mean, there's more than one Greek. I mean, yeah, so yeah. for you, this is not the Greek of Plato and Aristotle. This no. is the this is the Greek of of the fathers of the, fa right. the somewhere between the, the Eastern Church fathers. Right. It's it's a mostly mostly my Greek is the Motaki, which is uh, spoken Greek currently, and then with access to a good uh, lexicon, I can uh, e tease out some of the Slightly different patristic texts. Also, the fact that I spend time on Mount Athos still, periodically. A, lo a lot of their, uh, even their common day usages are an earlier Greek. So I, I find that fascinating that some of the monks are speaking, just using, employing earlier Greek terms for simpler things like, oh, I don't know, trapeza is, when they invite you to dinner, they go to, you go to trapeza. Well, if you were in, Thessaloniki, and you asked where the trapeza was, they send you to a bank, because that's what the word is for bank. Whereas uh, trapezi is the table in modern Greek, but, uh, but they use trapeza. They, they, so they have recourse to er earlier versions, and you find that sneaking up every once in a while, which actually helps me slightly, you know, subtly sl helps me to maintain that, that tension or an awareness of, of the differences and assist me as I make my meager translations. So the, well, yes, so part of what you do are, is to translate, and you've, you've rendered 
some classic texts into contemporary English. Mostly and, for my own purposes, yeah. Right, yeah. but I think Pericles brought out of, didn't he? Pericles did, but m much of that are what I would call uh, adaptations, because I was, the Evagrios in that is my own, and there may be some other similarly simple Greek texts that I translated on my own. I'm trying to remember what they were, but for the most part, those are, I, I call that translations and adaptations, whereas I had both the original in front of me and uh, subsequent translations by other more adept translators and, and employed those to help me come up with the adaptations, but, but all, and also Syriac. Uh, so there are a couple, like St. Ephraim of Syria and, and St. Isaac of Syria. I have pieces from them, and I have absolutely no understanding of Syriac, so I relied exclusively on uh, some translations by, well, mostly Sebastian Brock, who's the probably preeminent Syriac translator in, in, into English. Yeah, so I just want to push a little deeper into what is it about the language that is so generative to you. I mean, yeah. it's a language that's obviously coming out of a rich theological tradition, so it, it's sort of accumulated this sort of weight of usage and spiritual reflection behind right. it. Is it is it something in terms of, is it a way for you to try to replenish language to go to go back to a kind of, well, as my, my heroes of the Renaissance, they wanted to go ad fontes. They wanted yeah. to go back to the sources, yeah. to the kind of spring from which the water bubbles up. Is that part of what it's all about for you or? A little, not, not exactly. Okay. Though I, I, I acknowledge that that's, that's, a, that's a great model. My understanding of words, though, as you, as you well know, we've talked about this before, is that the, the poetic element of, of texts is, is not a retrospective activity so much as it is a prospective activity. So that I'm not like trying to get back through into the heart of the word or some source that precedes this text in front of me, but, but my sense of, it's relatively a rabbinic, Hebraic sense of words as having agency. And, and so when one pours over a text, the, the primarily poetic activity of that text is to enable the imagination to make something more of it. And I think that's the heart of my purposes but I also, but even before I started this habit of pouring over Greek texts, I, I've long encouraged my students to learn other languages, and for the most part, Romance languages, but not solely, for finding their way into making their own English texts. Because in a way, the more you know about other languages, the more you realize that English is really haunted by, uh, by other languages. Uh, and, and one of the things I, I've long wanted to do in my own poems and have subsequently uh, encouraged my students to do is learn from, to, to go ahead and, while you're writing a text in English, do it slowly enough that you can notice the words hiding in the words. Hmm. Because very often we, uh, we become a little immune or a little numb to 
how powerfully other languages participate in the meaning making of our English. Uh, one example I've often used in class with undergrads at least is, you know, I write philosophy on the board and I say, so what's philosophy? <laughs> and they'll go off on something about actually really privileging the notion of intellectual, you know, ideation. And, uh, and I said, well, let's look at the word. I mean, if we have any Greek at all, we know that philo, Sophia, philo, the love of Sophia, wisdom. So how often do we think of the love of wisdom when we think, when we say philosophy? And the answer is not often enough. And so, <laughs> but, but that's just one example of how, how exposure to other languages that, that do continue to haunt our usages uh, enables uh, a kind of richer, deeper sense of what we're saying when we're saying it. Yeah. And, and to learn, first of all, to look for those opportunities as you write, and then chase the, the sort of ghostly suggestions that go through your imagination as you're, as you're writing, and, and you find yourself saying things you had never thought to say. I loved last night, by the way, uh, right after Greg, hey y'all, right after Greg gave his talk yesterday on, on uh, beauty, truth, and goodness, <laughs> the true, the beautiful, and the good, uh, which was great, that was followed by a, a lovely reading by Lucy Shaw, and, and she was reading a poem she had written for her son. And, and I'll, I'll, bat, I'll mess it up, but the line that really got my attention was she said, to be a poet, you have to write more than you know. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely the case. And, and this process I was, I've just been describing to you is really my version of how does one write more than one knows? Well, yeah. you chase the language, you trust the language to lead you into a, a, a degree of discovery about what it is you're saying as you're saying it. And lo and behold, you're saying what you didn't know to say. Yeah. And, and sometimes recognize the truth in it, you know, kind of be, or surprised by finding yourself saying things you hadn't realized you thought, but then now that you're thinking about it, you, you tend to agree with it. You say, well, I wonder if that's true, and you hope it's so, and go on. So I want to press you a little bit on this sort of retrospective, prospective, mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying, and I know that it's very persuasive to me that poetry is not merely the reporting of a past event, mm -hmm. uh, though a lot of people think it is, because that renders language inert, and um, it, it also uh, avoids this, the, the risk of writing more than you know, because you're, you're sort of re encapsulating what you know. I get that. Um, but wouldn't you say, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm with you, but wouldn't you say that, that pouring over a language which has its hauntings, uh, historical hauntings, mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's, it's a way of looking back into the it, language. E each word has a history, has usage, uh, often which has been forgotten. Mm -hmm. So... Isn't it possible that you go backward in the sense of reaching, sort of rooting around the roots, so to speak, in order to go forward? Yeah. So, I mean, for example, you wrote a book 
with a rather interesting title of Idiot Psalms, uh-huh. which I think is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty fabulous. It's an excellent book. Because, you know, <laughs> I'm an idiot too. And um, I happened, I don't know through what uh, means, once was told that the word idiot kind of in its etymological Greek root, in some ways, I may get this imperfect, but it has something to do with somebody who lives out of their own, who lives in, in isolation, who mm-hmm. lives exactly. who lives out of themselves as opposed to out of um, openness to a sustaining yeah. other creation um, that uh, gives them their life and their, mm-hmm. their identity. So... In that sense, were your idiot psalms about the perennial human struggle to to uh, to get out of that isolation? Exactly. And therefore, you went back. <laughs> you went backward yeah. to that deeper etymological root of the word in order to press forward in your prospective yeah. style. Agreed. You're okay. right. Yeah. <laughs> I so, won that one. <laughs> so, the, well, let's just bear in mind that these aren't antithetical. Uh, I mean, you go back to find the source, and 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 sometimes I can overstate my disposition so much so that people think that I don't believe there's a a true behind the beautiful, <laughs> you know that that there is a like a, a an objective truth. I don't. I do think. I mean, obviously, I'm of a. I've signed on to a faith mm-hmm. that affirms. There are some mm. objective realities. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I'm saying is, we have relatively little access to the to the absolute. So mm-hmm. what we have in the meantime are paraphrases of it, right. and ways of sort of glimpsing right. that reality. And our languaging is one such path. But uh, by the way, going back to the title of the book, "Idiot Psalms," someone was asking me, in, sort of pressing me for why "Idiot Psalms." And I said, well, just to be clear, I consider myself, unfortunately, uh, you know, somewhat solid, somewhat isolated. And I do, my own faith teaches me that that's not a good thing. And so, but my tradition also has another version, the holy fool. So I, I would characterize myself as an idiot hoping to be a fool mm-hmm. <laughs> aspiring to be a fool yeah, yeah. So, yeah. beautiful <laughs> so okay I'm well still working on that but i'm still mostly an idiot um no that's that's beautiful i that's, and those are really again rich traditions that can be made new in the mm-hmm. making yeah. in the making i think both of us uh both of us care a lot about truth but we also I think a lot of our professional lives has been a struggle with people who, who are a little overconfident about their, <laughs> their capacity to, yeah, to I'd, find and possess that truth. Yeah, I'd say uh, there, there, we tend to be come, we tend to come across people in our faith walk uh, who share our faith walk, as far as we can tell, but who, nonetheless, maybe are a little too sure of their their paraphrases as being a little more accurate, a little more the thing than uh, talk about the thing. And I just think the kind of humility that one acquires over as one gets older, the, the, the only benefit of getting older is acquiring greater humility, I think. 
And part of the benefit of that is being aware of the limits of our own knowledge, and, and, but nonetheless holding on to the, the hope that there is, there is a real, there is a truth into which we are, in, towards, toward which we are moving. But our, but our own ways of talking about God, for instance, you know, never, you know, the God I can actually comprehend with my language, you know, encompass with my language is, is no God at all. The God we all worship is, is necessarily beyond such termination. And uh, he's, in, he's interminable. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, so yeah, it, it's and sometimes you know we find ourselves having to overstate our sides of the right of the vision just just to defend ourselves against being mistaken, being misunderstood as uh, as you know replacing God with things we say about God. Well, I think it's it's sort of the difference between a kind of mere relativism on the one hand and a respect for mystery on the other hand. I mean, yeah. that, that, the latter, I think, is what we're striving for, mm-hmm. not, not some kind of, you know, anything goes, because that just returns to subjectivism as well. Yeah, it's, yeah we don't want to uh, prematurely conclude. We, we want to continue right. to, toward uh, uh, realizing the, the vision that, we're, that is leading us. And... Uh, I, you know, I pray one day we'll have, I don't, you know, my sense of what's ahead of us after this life is, is that this, this journey of discovery doesn't end, but that, you know, and that's what the Greek notion of theosis is all about, you know, becoming like God, Uh, you become increasingly holy if, if you're doing it right. (laughs) And, and, but what happens when you, when you make some progress along the lines of holiness, uh, deification, your apprehension of who God is is enhanced. And so, my sense my sense from the fathers is that this is an endless, eternal journey. Our becoming more like the one we we see, but always knowing that He's more. And moving into that, and then discovering he is more, and mm. and I can't imagine how you know the creatures we're going to become. Mm. I don't know if you remember that one of my favorite books about C.S. Lewis, by C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, which I think is probably not his most popular, but it's my favorite. It's called The Weight of Glory, mm-hmm. and uh, he makes an observation somewhere in there about you know if you, you've never met a mere mortal. <laughs> If you had any clue, if you could see what the person before you is going to become, you'd either you'd be tempted, you know, either of two directions: either to flee <laughs> in terror, mm-hmm. or or to kneel down and worship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just this. That's those are the choices, I guess. It's, you're gonna you get. We all develop into something eternally, and uh, you know, God willing, we'll 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 develop that sort of. De- aspects of the divine that that we've been made to become mm, made in the likeness beautiful uh, made in made in the image and growing into the likeness i suppose is how i've heard it said yeah 
So the current project is Anaphora. Anaphora, yeah. So what, just help us define uh, what's the translation of that single word there? Well, uh, I don't, you, you, may, you may recognize it from your Poetry 101 classes as a, as a formal... Uh, oh, a rhetorical device? Yeah. Ah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's, a, it's a formal representation where you... Uh, that it's, it has to do with repetition, repetition. So lines that begin with the, in the same way and then build out from mm. that. But, but there's a recurrence. Mm. Um, what, I, and I am interested in that formal device, but, but what got my attention and made me want to think about using that figure as, a, as the title of a book is that uh, I think I think in most Eucharistic practices there we have that moment when the Holy Spirit infuses the elements with himself or herself itself when the Holy Spirit holies up all of the above <laughs> holies up to the elements that that's referred to as the anaphora and the reason that's referred to as the anaphora at least in the Eastern tradition I presume this is because all the all the liturgies sort of spawn from similar sources. Um, there, there is in, in our, the Eastern tradition the uh, the anaphora <laughs> uh, the, of Saint Basil the Great is is the prayer at, during the liturgy of Saint Basil. The, the it's it's the it's the prayer that's actually structured like an anaphora. So it has that that formal thing, but but it also utters. It's a prayer for the God uh, sanctifying, entering the elements which we've presented as a mm-hmm. gift. Thine own of thine own, we offer into the, and uh, and then we partake of that. But so it, it's this this moment in the liturgy when what we bring becomes Him. Beautiful, and so that. That sort of so burrowed its re- way into your yeah. your own heart and mind in a way that began to generate poetry. Yeah. Well, I wrote a few anaphora, and then I thought uh, I'd write some more, and then the whole project of this book is like a, I think one of offering and hoping that the holy enters. <laughs> So that's 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 why that term for this book. But well, would you favor us with a reading well, of, of one of the shot. one of those poems? I assume that not every poem in the collection is in that form, but maybe we could start. Here's one that's called Anaphora on Orcas Island. Ooh, which we can see. You can from almost here. see it from here, I think. It's that it's gotta be out that way. Mm-hmm. So Remember, remember books and culture, that beautiful I do. Late lamented, although somewhat resurrected online through education and culture, still edited by our good friend John Wilson. Oh, good. I'm glad John's found something (laughs) useful to do with his time. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, anyway, John was kind enough to publish this in one of the late, one of the last 
issues of books and culture. It's called Anaphora on Orcas Island. To behold the sublime, one must first accede that one is also held, beheld, beholden to. One must first agree. To behold the sublime, one must first forego one's taste for standing clear, for standing far apart. One must see. To behold the sublime, one must first suspend the long-held lie of self-sufficiency, accept the pulse. The sky, held close to all that lay in view with mist and wood smoke mingling low amid the deep expanse of green, availed a glimpse, if momentary, of what one's hunger might occasion, shy of satisfaction, even so. Mm. Mm. I'm going to read you Nepsis, which has a little anaphora activity in it. But we don't, we know this word Nepsis? Uh, well, we as in Greg Wolf, no. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So Nepsis is uh, this, uh, uh, it's watchfulness. It's often translated watchfulness. And so the fathers, uh, especially the, you know, like the saintly writers of the te of texts on prayer will counsel uh, developing a, a watchfulness because as we as we all realize during our spiritual development is that we can make some ground and then unguardedly lose it right <laughs> like that <laughs> and start and you have to start over sometimes even farther back than where you started before but so anepsis is this accompaniment. It's a disposition of watchfulness, being aware of, of what you're susceptible to and avoiding it. And so as not to lose ground. A little bit like the Psalms do that a lot, right? The, yeah. wa the watchman. Yeah. Is, yeah. You have to be alert to be aware. Okay. So nepsis. Nepsis. Notice how the piercing winter chill fails quite to enter the heart's bright furnace, O oh, brilliant bright furnace. Notice how the yammering electorate also fails to obtain against the heart's quiet, any ground, any likely purchase to nudge the weight of long-acquired stillness, O oh, pulsing stillness. What heat, what light, what pulse is this? What recourse has the weary pilgrim save to stand before that endless beckoning, to draw his every scattered member into one, to draw and so be drawn. What shall he say? O braided being, include within your deep enormity this, these, every, all. Mm, mm, wow, beautiful. So those are two tastes of the manuscript. Yeah. This is kind of a footnote, but am I completely off base or do some of your poems, do some poems almost want to talk to other poems? Yeah, well, I only... Is that going on as well as what's going on in the poem itself? Well, as I tell my students, as I warn my students pretty much every semester, I only have four ideas. <laughs> and and I, you know, I've made a relatively okay, satisfactory career just reworking those four ideas. 
Well, they, they're, they're four good they're ideas. They're four humdingers, <laughs> let me tell you. But but really, I, uh, I'm you know I'm still trying to work with certain glimpses I've had of, of, uh, of what is so you know and I and uh, you know not that I own it but I have you know I've, I've constantly a sense of being led to kind of work over that terrain for more. Well, I think that's true of, of, of you know many artists and in many of the great ones too. I mean I often think that. The sort of, we want to talk about formal devices. There's the classic formal device of theme and variations. Mm -hmm. And what is that but saying, here's one really good idea. You know, Beethoven says, oh, here's this guy Diabelli who wrote this, <laughs> you know, this pretty cool little melody line. I'm going to write 32, <laughs> you know, I'm going to play with it 32 times. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really, because you're, you're hoping for that, just that little extra yield. Yeah. Right? Yeah, well, I love this notion uh, people talk about it as unpacking mm -hmm. an idea or unpacking a text. And, and you know, the best texts uh, are un endlessly unpackable. I mean, you, you just, it's, it's like, the, like the clown car, you know. The little car stops in the middle of the circus ring and... and <laughs> All these clowns come out and they just keep coming out. <laughs> well, there's a metaphor. There's a poem for some of you to write. The clown car is a metaphor of the, the text's endless yield. Yeah, I think probably that... Uh, if anyone ever does write a monograph on my work, it'll probably be... That'll be the title. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, of course, the clown is kind of a holy fool in its, in its way. So it all comes around. Oh, well, that's wonderful. So um, what's next for you after that? Do you have any other projects kind of yeah, yeah, on the simmer? Well, I have, uh, so I've, uh, Pericles, I owe that book to Pericles, and I owe another book to Pericles, actually, uh -huh. called Descent to the Heart. And initially I was going to be uh, reworking, uh, sort of writing verse adaptations from the Philokalia, but... As I read through the uh, the, the Philokalia, uh, you know, one comes across certain warnings in the, in the text itself, not to mess with the text. <laughs> All right, so for the benefit of those of us who don't know what the Philokalia is, just give us a short... Okay, well, it's, uh, it's a, the title of a collection of writings on prayer, the prayer of the heart, and the, these writings, the original writings span from, I guess, some of them as early as the 4th century and up until like the 15th century. But uh, there, there's a, a Greek philokalia and there's a Russian dobrotolubia, uh, which is, I guess, philokalia in Russian. <laughs> and it's the philokalia is the love of the good. Mm. Or the beautiful. Kalia is an interesting Greek word because it has both good and be uh, beautiful in it. Right. And so f the love of the good and the beautiful is, and and that it's a name that various uh, saintly writers, ha patristic writers have used for different sorts of collections. But 
the one that's best known is this particular Greek philokalia that has writings of different saints from different periods, mostly monastic writers, writing mostly to monks about how to cultivate this prayer of the heart, this Jesus prayer tradition, to some uh, advantage for their spiritual well-being and for the well-being of those around them. So that's the philokalia itself. Uh, and this is not any less ambitious, but I've sort of put the idea of summarizing the philokalia <laughs> out of mind. And what I'm doing instead, which is probably crazier, is so St. Isaac of Syria, one of my, he's the saint whose name I took when I became Orthodox. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I go to church, very often they call me Isaac. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and on Mount Athos, they all call me Isaac. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, so the homilies of St. Isaac the Syrian uh, is a text that uh, monastics have used also from since you know the seventh century, which is when uh, Saint Isaac lived, and uh, the uh, I think I first came across Saint Isaac of Syria in Brothers Karamazov because that's uh, if you remember the Grigory the the guy who's taking taking care of Shmerdinkov as when he's a little boy uh, has this copy mm. which he re reads and mm. then. And, and so the actu that, that actual text shows up twice in Brothers Karamazov. And in the interim, Father Zosima's, uh, Zosima is, uh, much of what he says seems to me to be cribbed from the sayings of St. Isaac of Syria. So much of what the sort of saintly central monastic figure in that Brothers Karamazov novel uh, what much of what he has to say <laughs> is actually our paraphrases of Saint Isaac of Syria, and and one no and we do know that uh, Dostoevsky had his own copy uh, mm. by his bedside, uh, so he was he was well versed in. So what I'm doing instead is called it's the project is now going to be sort of verse adaptations of selections from the ascetical homilies of Saint Isaac of Syria. Mm. So that's what that is about. Wonderful. Focusing on the prayer of the heart. Wonderful. Yeah. Beautiful. So is there a way to define that phrase, the prayer of the heart? Yeah. Well, specific, I mean, specifically, it's referring to the Jesus prayer. Okay. And then, but the Jesus prayer is what you say. Those are the words you say mm. as you descend into your heart and find God praying there. Mm. So this is... It's it's a it's a discipline mm -hmm. that causes it's it's the Isicast tradition, uh, which is to say this, the tradition the monastic tradition of acquiring stillness. When Saint Paul says, uh, "Be anxious for nothing," we say, "Yeah, well, easy for you." <laughs> <laughs> but this is one Fair of the enough. ways. This is one of the ways that the fathers have. Uh, prescribed one of the medicines they prescribed for our anxiety you know to be anxious for nothing is a good goal and uh, one of the ways that holy men and women over the centuries have acquired uh, have fended off anxiety and anxiousness is to develop this uh, prayer of the heart which mm. gives them a kind of stillness in the midst of all the turmoil that surrounds us mm. and makes us more useful 
in, you know, in inter intercession for those around us mm. in, in our own prayer. So your verse adaptation, let me guess, see how correct I am. You're, you care about the original text, so you're going to be rendering something that is genuinely mm -hmm. coming from this source. Right. But you're going to be finding ways to... Open it up. Because, so the reason I'm doing verse is because, so St. Isaac wrote in prose, and he wrote in Syriac. So I'm having recourse to a couple different translators, uh, translations of the Syriac homilies, and pouring over them and finding portions that give us a lot of what he has to say in a re relatively discrete space. And then putting those in verse, because in my experience, that opens the text further for, for the participation and the meaning making of the reader. So that, the, because the heart of all of this, heart of, the heart of the prayer of the heart is, is that we become participants um, anew in his presence. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what I, what I hope to do is find, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so pages of text. You know, there, there are probably, what, 600 pages of the ascetical homilies in prose. And so I'm just going to come up with about a hundred pages of short paragraphs that, that I, that where I find sort of the heart of the matter. And then the, the heart of the matter of the heart. <laughs> and uh, offer them in verse that will open up the sense. You know how, so when we're reading a, when we're making sense of a poem, the primary sense of what a poem is saying to us is derived from syntax, the code of syntax. So, you know, the capital letter says start making sense, and then the end punctuation says stop for a second and figure out what you just read, mm -hmm. and then go on. Sure. And, and so in prose, uh, as in poetry, that's, in prose, that's how we make meaning with it. But in in verse poetry, uh, very often the syntax is interrupted by the line break, which avails a glimpse of something else being said. Hmm. And, and one learns when hmm. writing pro, uh, verse to take advantage of those openings and opportunities to see more hmm. in, in the phrase that's quite, you know, it, it's the same phrase, but if you parse it and pay attention to it, it's pieces. Right. Your own imagination engages us and engages that meaning-making activity, and, and you find a way in for yourself. Your own need is somehow answered in that part the imagination uh, supplies while you're working over something that everyone else is looking at. Mm. But something about you yeah. and your need Yes. Is, is made manifest in that uh, sort of slow going through a text. Well, I think the, the magic of the line break is, is not something that people necessarily immediately recognize. I mean, a lot of people just assume, <clears throat> well, the rule says you can have only so many syllables on this line, and <laughs> yeah. when you run out of syllables, you just go ahead and you start putting yeah. some more syllables on the next line. But... Right. I guess to really get to another level of appreciation of poetry, you have to realize that the poet's not, it's not 
purely arbitrary where yeah. those brakes are are part of the larger toolkit yeah. of the way that the poet makes meaning. As a reader of poetry, you want to learn to appreciate each line as having something to say. Uh, this doesn't work with every poem you're going to come across because a lot of poets sort of squander this richness as right. well. But if you're in the hands of someone who isn't squandering it, you get a lot more out of the experience by noticing how a line says a thing, which the next line troubles, mm. which the next line troubles yet further. Mm. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're all part of a sentence, <laughs> you know, that says the primary thing. But along the way, you get these like, secondary and tertiary glimpses of other meaning be possible. Mm. And that's, that's where the self, the, like the, the human person pouring over the text is invited to imaginatively see what else is there. Mm. And, and that's why I write poetry, that's why I read poetry, is to, is to find more. I, which goes back to what Lucy was saying, you know, to be a poet, you, you know, you, you have to write more than you know. And that's what, and to, to read poetry, you have to be willing to see more than you saw. Right. <laughs> which, you know, sounds perhaps like hubris or pride, but no, well, in holy... some ways, I hope, was maybe an attempt at humility well, to go back to the thing we were talking about before. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hope so. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, yeah, it, this is all underwritten by an awareness that no matter what I see or say or know, that's not the whole story. Right. The whole story is impossibly is is more than I can hold. But what what these activities, these various I don't know prayer act, prayer disciplines, writing disciplines, which are becoming less separate for me as I get older. But uh, both disciplines, or whatever that a, a dis, the overall overriding discipline of paying attention to what's in front of you, whether that's a text or a person. Or a landscape, paying attention to it, which is an expression of love, is a way of being aware that there's that there's something for you to see now. But it also clues you into that there's there's a lot more. Our our world is endless, and the God in whom we live and move and have our being is is incomprehensible. Um, and humility is necessarily a byproduct of that. Uh, glimp of that knowledge. So that's all I know is that I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've heard that before. Yeah. And, I, uh, I, but I, we can't hear it too often. Well, you know, one thing I can always say with honesty is that um, I'm anxious for nothing when I talk to you, Scott Cairns. <laughs> um, it's always a joy and it's a pleasure and I feel like there's an endlessness there. So, um, what say you we wrap up here and go smoke a stogie? May it be blessed. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on the Image Podcast. Thank you, Gregory. A big thank you to Scott Cairns for joining us on the Image Podcast. If you liked this interview, you should check out the Seattle Pacific Low Residency MFA Program's website, spu.edu slash MFA. 
If you're interested in applying for the Winter 2018 Residency, applications are due by November 15th. The Image Podcast is produced by Image Journal, a leading literary quarterly exploring the intersection of art, faith, and mystery. Thanks to Luke Farquhar for his editing prowess, Over the Rhine for the music you're humming along to right now, and our guest, Scott Cairns. We'll see you in another two weeks on the next episode of our show.